Good morning, you wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. Um, everything they say about Minnesotans in North Dakota is just not true. Very seriously, you have amazed us with your kindness, your hospitality, your affirmation. Just so many of you are stopping by and expressing gratitude. It means the world, and we are very grateful. And I want you to know that you really, really are very special people. And we honor you as that today and thank God for you. I often stop to think about these days at camp and filling this place day after day, morning and evening and youth events. We've had our grandkids with us this week and they've been really ministered to and touched. And I wonder what happens in the unseen world. That's a part of the discussion we often don't have. But I just want to say to your friends, you have no idea what you're accomplishing just by sitting in this room today. Filling this place twice a day and having our kids ministered to, I really believe that we are sticking our finger in the devil's eye. I do believe that. I believe in the unseen world. We're making statements that we're not giving up. We're not letting up. We're not giving in. I think we're making declarations every single day by being here. And by the way, can I just commend you for the way in which you tarry in God's presence. We've filled the place. You stay right through. We've packed the altars out. I think we have made a declaration in the unseen world that we're here and we're here to stay and we're going to be a living, walking, breathing defiance of the rot that's taken place in our nation, and we are going to serve Jesus in our day. <clears throat> and so not just for you and your families and your churches, but really for our nation, there's something so special about what happens here that I believe that the branches can go over the wall and that our whole nation will benefit because of the good, faithful, kind, gracious, amazing, wonderful people of Lake Geneva Christian Center and of Minnesota. So we feel very honored. I hope you've kind of adopted us just a little bit. I'll work on the accent so that I can help Pastor Doug next time around. Aren't his jokes just the worst you've ever heard in your life? <clears throat> I don't know how you tolerate having him back year after year, but I know he's trying, he's trying desperately to get out of it. But don't let him off the hook. Those jokes and the corniness are worth it. So... Just a final mention, we are flying out to North Carolina tomorrow, and so just a final mention of the books that we've got left on the back. Thank you to so many who have taken advantage. I've mentioned the book that I've just published called Faithful, Stories of Trust, Courage, and Resilience. It actually interestingly starts all the way back in South Africa, and uh, as I was writing this book, I was remembering an incredibly faithful and gracious and generous couple by the name of Jerry and Mary Scoonby. Jerry was an engineer. He built roads from Zambia to Cape Town. His wife was a Catholic woman from Scotland, and they met as they were out in the African bush, and they got married and agreed that they would never ever speak about religion or about politics for the sake of their marriage, and they never did. Until Jerry was about 50 years of age, he was the... Uh, chief executive officer of a very large construction company and a courageous person from Campus Crusade for Christ invited him to a breakfast that was being held way down on the southeast coast. So he got in the corporate jet and he flew on down, never ever given much consideration to faith. And about a 50 or 52-year-old, he heard the gospel proclaimed at that Campus Crusade for Christ breakfast and got radically and dramatically transformed. Well, now he had a dilemma because he went home 
And his wife said, Jerry, what's happened? He said, I can't say. She said, she said I'll kill you. You get it? You, you know, she's a Scotswoman. Mark will know a little bit about what it's like to be married to somebody with fiery Scots blood in them. And um, so he said, we agreed never to speak about religion. He, she said, you will tell me what's happened. And so he told this Catholic wife of his who had devoutly tried to serve God all her life. And uh, he said, I've given my life to Jesus. And she melted and she gave her life to Jesus. And their whole family was dramatically transformed. And about six months into their conversion, they came to a point where they said, God, you've blessed us. They had an exquisite home. They'd fly to Europe and they would, um, they would furnish their home in 16th century antiques. It was just a sumptuous home, home and garden magazine kind of place. And they looked around, they said, God, everything you've given us, it's all at your good hand. Right now we commit 50% of all that we have and all that we are back to the work of God. At the same time, there was a 20-something-year-old couple that felt the call of God in their lives to mobilize missionaries to serve around the world and we desperately needed facilities we had no money I remember we would go and we'd look for property and then have to trust God for the gas to get back home and remarkably our lives collided and all the way back in 1983 we got invited to one of their beautiful resorts right on the edge of the Kruger National Park swimming pool and tennis courts and lovely subtropical gardens over about 50 acres of land and I'm cutting out a lot of detail but in October of that year we sat in the beautiful lounge in that, in that uh, wonderful resort. And Jerry and Mary Scoonby looked across that table. They said, God's given us confidence in your vision. I'm 27. Carol's just a little younger. And we've got this vision to mobilize people from the southern tip of Africa to serve God around the world. And we want you to know that everything you see here belongs to you to do what God's called you to do from the teaspoons in the kitchen to the tennis courts in the garden. And they were true to their word at their own cost. They transferred the titles of that beautiful resort to us. And we opened our doors in 1985. South Africa was going through difficult times at the end of the apartheid era. And do you know that within seven years we had graduates serving God in 42 nations around the world. They'd gone out and they had been trained. We made a massive response to the Mozambican refugee crisis. We were amongst the very first Christian leaders to uh, respond to creating home-based AIDS care programs, and many of those continue with thousands of children being fed every day. And as I wrote the final word of this book, their granddaughter, who now lives in Canada, contacted us, said, my grandma's just gone to be with Jesus. And so they passed away as I wrote this book, but I honor Jerry and Mary Scoonby. And that's where it all begins. And then the miracles of the last 10 years out in the northern plains of North Dakota. So that's not for sale. It's for donation. And uh, we are going to put every penny that comes in into our endowment fund for future generations. So just mention that again. Carol's latest book, Simple Trust, which is 50 really pithy, exciting uh, little bits of uh, devotions. And uh, we know people are using this for Bible study groups and uh, home groups. And uh, it's just been, so, I kind of like it when people tell me how good my wife is. And uh, I, I tend to agree with them very quickly. But she's written a very inspiring book there. And then the memoir that tells stories of our lives. Um, they're at the back there. And we'll hang around just as long as we need to if you want to get one. We've got one of those little slidey things that can take a card. It's really quite fascinating. If you haven't seen how they work, come to the back and I'll run your card two or three times just to show you. <laughs> <clears throat>
I always tell myself not to joke because sometimes it doesn't actually register the first time, so I end up sliding it and I feel bad about it. But uh, <clears throat> are we ready for a little time where we confront truth and allow it to confront us? One of the things, friends, that we've got to understand is that every time we gather around God's word, one of the outcomes is that we make decisions. For you might not know this as clearly as I'm going to tell it now, but a great deal of your spiritual life is not so much spiritual or hard, it's cerebral. It's hearing God's word and it's acting upon it. It's making choices, it's making decisions, and I hope that today you will make some decisions with me. I want to base what I have to say on Ephesians chapter 5. I love the book of Ephesians. We quote it often. It's a book that Pentecostals love, especially the fourth chapter where we speak about the gifts of Christ, the ascended Lord who has now given gifts to men who happen to be people, the gifts of apostles and prophets. And so we quote that a great deal. And then he gets across into chapter five and some of the sort of theological stuff that Paul is very prone to write about because that was his specialty. That's how he was trained. That's how his brain worked. It kind of gets pushed to the side and we have this incredibly practical chapter where Paul just gets in the face of Christ's followers and said, if you want to follow Jesus, there have got to be some things that start to become transformed in your life. You don't continue to mess around. You get yourself straight. You get your sexuality and, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, issues of, of, of drunkenness and stealing and just practical issues of life. God's there to give you grace to make your life functional. So if you haven't heard this often enough, hear it again today. If you are a born-again, Christ-following person, part of the destiny of your life is not to retain dysfunctionality in your life. It's to move to a place where life works, where things work, where you can get things coming together, and where families and lives become functional. So that's what Ephesians 5 is all about. You'll read it there. It mustn't be a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or of greed or any other improper stuff. And then we come down to verse 16, 15 and 16, which are kind of summary verses, if you like. And I want to speak to you about those. In verse 15, as a summary, a kind of a final emphasis on all this practical advice that's being given, it says this, be very careful then how you live. There's the summary, just be careful how you live, not as unwise or, but as wise, comma, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, taking every opportunity or making the most of every opportunity. Let me give you a little insight to the process of preaching today. Responsible preachers, and not all preachers are responsible, but responsible preachers, when they approach the Bible, they do so firstly reverently. We believe that God's word is inspired and it needs to be approached with due diligence and care and reverence. And that's what I try to teach those that I influence to be preachers of God's word and of righteousness. 
So we approach it prayerfully and reverently. That's the first thing that's really important. And then another thing that's really important is to look at the Bible as we've got it in our English version and understand that it's gone through a process of translation and so it needs a little bit of work, not just simply to try to understand it at its very superficial level, but what is the meaning, what is the context? So the next thing that Christian preachers who are responsible do is they look who wrote this part of the Bible. They'll ask questions like why was it written? What was the context or the background? Who was it written to? That's really important because we've got to understand that sometimes a letter makes a great big difference when you understand those that are receiving the letter. So you spend a little bit of time. So that's quite obvious because right at the top of the page in your Bible, it speaks about Ephesians. So we're able to discern that it goes to the church in Ephesus. So we go through that. We approach it reverently. Then we look at it in context and who is it written by? When was it written? Who was it written to? These are all really important things to help us understand the text and then explain it so that it enters our hearts and makes a difference. And then what we do is we go a little bit further if we treat the text really carefully and we look and see if there is anything that was in the original language in which it was written that might just have lost a little bit of its meaning in translation. I believe that we can trust the English Bible fully and completely. There's not a huge difference between many of the versions and it's hardly worth the arguments that we have about them but nevertheless, those that have the responsibility of breaking God's word, of exegeting the scripture, need to take time to understand not just who wrote it and when it was written and who it was written to, but are there any, thing, are there any things within the sense of the text and the language itself? What is in the narrative? What were the verbs that were used? What was the tense that was used? Is there a little bit that's in the Greek that might have a slightly stronger emphasis that we might it not immediately pick up and that's why we explain God's word and we read God's word and we've got volumes and volumes in our libraries that provide commentary and word studies and backgrounds and responsible preachers should do that and I pray that everybody in this room who has the responsibility of breaking God's word would be diligent about the task because it's a high and it's a holy calling and I thank God for the call upon my life to be a preacher. So I did that with Ephesians chapter 5. I went through it. Obviously, the careful things are there that we can understand who wrote it, when it was written, the Apostle Paul to Ephesus. And then I got to verse 15, and I wondered what might be involved in the grammar of verse 15, because it says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And as I went through it as carefully as I knew how, I came to a conclusion that I know exactly what the grammar is saying. And this is what this grammar is in its most obvious form. The Apostle Paul, if he was here today, would say it as well. It's simply this when it says, don't be unwise, but don't be unwise, but be wise. I absolutely am convinced that it says this, don't be stupid. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. I think if Paul was here with some passion added to the text, he would look us all in the eyes and say, please, please, as Christ followers, as you understand this good gospel that's been delivered to us, please make sure that you make enough thoughts and decisions and processes 
put into your life and the fabric of your being so that you do not live stupid lives. Don't be stupid. And then, interestingly, right in the same sentence, it's not even a new sentence, there's just a comma separating it, he goes on to explain very brilliantly how to avoid perpetual and systemic stupidity. And this is how we do it. We make the most of every opportunity. We discern life. We work out what's going on. We seize the day. We arise to opportunities. And we determine that a very strong and evident discipline of our lives is that we take every opportunity, we make the most of it, and we make sure that we wisely engage what life is all about. So don't be stupid. And then the way to avoid systemic stupidity is to make the most of every opportunity that comes your way and learn the disciplines of how to do that. So I then started to think further about that, and I thought, you know, perhaps the best way to understand that is to identify some of these opportunities that come our way. Maybe if we got a little list of the opportunities, we would be more discerning on how to make the most of them and avoid stupidity. So I have a little list for you today of opportunities that I would ask you to be super alert to so that you can make the most of them and live wise lives. Do you see how that's a pretty obvious connection that's made in the text. The first thing that I became aware of was what I call special times. I don't know about you, but I love special times. I love moments in our lives where we can just take time out and enjoy the special seasons of life. I think camp is a special time. It's about eight exhausting days with thousands of kids threatening to kill you with their their bicycles. But despite all of that and dodging them along the way, at the end of the week, I look back and I say, what an amazing time that was. We have lived since our first time at camp to bring our grandkids on camp because it's a very special time. It's not a time to just survive and get through and hope that it's all going to work out. It's a time to seize and grab hold of and employ your entire commitment to enjoying the special time in your life. I don't know about you, but I love Christmas. I don't want to pop any of your bubbles, but Christmas didn't really happen in the Bible and Jesus wasn't born on the 25th of December. Maybe that's an entire new revelation and you want to go and read some very good uh, author on why Jesus wasn't born on the 25th of December. It was actually a a festival that was practiced way back in the ancient world and we kind of Christianized it and people get all uptight and twisted and they get all sorts of things about it. I don't care, friends. Presents are presents and Christmas dinner is Christmas dinner and I love Christmas and I'm going to take every opportunity to enjoy it to the best of my ability. It comes shortly after Thanksgiving, which must be one of the best national holidays in the whole world. Who else takes a whole day out in their national calendar just to be thankful and to tell stories of God's goodness? Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, special times, they are there, friends, for you to have an appetite for life and a deliberate effort to celebrate the special times that come our way. I just don't, you were not created to be boring. There's not a single cell in your body that has the fingerprint of God that's intended to be boring and lackluster and grumpy. God deliver us from grumpy people. (laughs) 
who have Christmas dinner on paper plates. <laughs> you probably know this, but uh, we make tea really well in our house. Now, none of this cheap Lipton stuff. That's just obnoxious. Uh, we, we, we blend our tea leaves and we warm the pot and swill it out and we put tea in and then we let it seep for a little while and then, of course, you've got to have really nice, fine bone china, no horrible polystyrene. And, and, and then, so I need to tell you that for Carol and me, when we get just to be together, and comes around four o'clock in the afternoon, that's a special time. We sit down with our tea and we celebrate. Many of you know that 20 years ago, we nearly lost our son in a horrendous car accident. I'll make a few references to that today. Uh, God gave him back to us. It was a long and very traumatic journey. We were told every day for 21 days that he wouldn't make it. This was the day he would die. And we went through all of that long, dark journey, and then God brought him through. And eventually, in remarkable ways, about six and a half weeks after the accident, they came to us one day and said, we think that he'll get better at home rather than the hospital. And so we ended up taking a frail young boy. It was like bringing your baby home. His legs had atrophied to the thickness of my wrists. And I remember we took him home. We were very, very nervous about bringing our boy home. And then every day it was a big deal to get him down the stairs and then back up the stairs. He had a rib that had gone right down through the atrium of his heart and blown a hole that big through the left and right ventricles. So his, air, his uh, blood wasn't being oxygenated, so he was always exhausted. Eventually, we managed to get him down the driveway, and then we managed to walk him around the cul-de-sac. And every day was just a big day of victories. And then the big day came when I was able, with confidence, to take my boy out on my own with him and go and get a coffee. So I got him in the car, I lifted his legs in, I said, Jay, we're going off, we're going to have a great coffee. We drove off to the local Starbucks, and I got him out, I sat him down in a chair, and I got in line, and um, I ordered coffee. And so I brought these two coffees. This is just amazing. I wanted the whole world to know, this is my boy, and God's given him back. And I handed him his coffee, and we sat down, and we had a little bit of a conversation. And I don't know about you, but I drink coffee. I mean, that's not a values or moral statement. It's just a statement of fact. I, I, I don't chew it. I don't spill it. I drink it. And, um, and so I, I drank my coffee and then I said, Jay, Jay, come on, we got to go. And I picked up his cup and he had hardly taken a sip. And here he is still very weak. And he looks back and he says, dad, chill, chill, dad, just chill. He said, dad, you got to understand you don't drink coffee. You do coffee. I said, oh, I'm being reverse mentored here by the next generation. So I'm thinking, um, okay, I've got to learn that language. So I said, okay, we'll do your coffee because we've got to get home. And um, so <clears throat> we go home. And about three or four weeks later, we had the opportunity again to go out to coffee. And he was that much stronger that he said, Dad, you go and sit down. 
and I'll get the coffee. Well, that was another big victory in this journey. So I sat down. I'm so proud seeing him order. He comes across very frail, still shaking a little bit, and he puts his coffee down. He puts my coffee down. I said, well done, Jay. That was great. And about 20 minutes goes by, half an hour, and I feel my cup, and there's still quite a lot of coffee in my cup. I'm thinking, I don't know what's happened here, but I've learned to do coffee. I'm, I'm feeling the coolest dad on the planet right now. This is just amazing. I'm doing coffee, and so I looked across at him. I said, Jay, guess what? And I held up this half-filled cup. I said, I'm doing coffee. And he gets this little smile on his thin face. He says, yeah, dad, I ordered yours extra, extra, extra hot. (laughs) 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 But the point, friends, is when you realize the beauty and the fragility and the gift of life, you don't just survive day by day You do life, you do coffee, and you celebrate special times. Put those events into, if it's a birthday soon, take time out for a birthday. Oh, you have no idea, I'm getting old, and it's not so much fun getting old. It's all not what it's cracked out to be. Give us a break. There are a lot of people who don't have the privilege of getting to where you are in life. And so every day is a day to rejoice in the goodness of God for he's been good, so good to me. And I'm gonna celebrate every birthday with gratitude and thanksgiving and let Christmas come around. And if there's anything that we just need to create to celebrate, we will celebrate that as well because I wanna make the most of every opportunity. Special times. With me? Well, we're not done yet. Here's another one. And you guys do this really well because you're campers. But another opportunity to take the most of is social opportunities. Let me just try and help you along here a little bit, friends. You are wired, you are created right into the hard wiring of your life is a creative purpose that you have been born to be part of community. It's not just something that we celebrate at a spiritual or theological level. It's just who we are. It's how we've been hardwired. There is something inside of you that will never be fully completed or fully explored until you learn what it is to actually get over yourself, love God, love life and love people we are created for community and community happens very often when we create social opportunity I often tell people about us Pentecostals we don't smoke we don't drink but man we do food well You go to some of the country churches we get to go to and see the potlucks there. I mean, you could feed an army on most of those potlucks that are served in little basements, in little churches. We love to do that. And it's good and it's right and it's proper because we are created and wired to be involved and to be committed. And so we ought to become very sensitive in not being stupid, in in making the most of every opportunity to get with people to invite them around, to open our homes, to have social events around the life of the church. If you're a pastor, make sure you make as much effort in understanding the social calendar as you do the preaching calendar. First church we ever pastored was broken and hurt. I was pacing the church one day saying, God, what do we do? How do we bring this church back to wholeness? And as clearly as I heard God say anything, he said, have fun. I said, okay. There was a single lady in our church, single mother. I said, will you help me? She said, she sure will. And we put on about five special events. In one year, we wore the carpet in our minor hall through to the floorboards. 
and it healed our church. When we arrived at Trinity some years ago, the person showing me around, I'm looking at these broken buildings and clearly broken com community, and I said, so tell me, where do the faculty get together? He looked at me. He said, they don't. I said, you don't even have a water cooler? No, we don't even have that. So we had a fallen down building. Some of you have worked on it. it uh, the frost had got into the foundations and it collapsed about six inches back on its foundations. It was due to be condemned, but there was one lovely room downstairs. So we put some through the window units in. We cleaned it up. I went down to the local furniture store. I said, everything that's been on your floor for three years or longer, will you give it to us at cost? He was glad to move the stock. He said, I will. I had no idea what sort of colors we were going to get. It might have been the most gaudy arrangement of furniture you've ever seen in your whole life. We did it anyway, and so we put it in. It was beautiful. It all fitted, and we in the ice and the snow of winter would carry coffee pots from our cafeteria across, and it became a minor obsession of mine that you meet in the commons at 10 a.m. every morning, and the crazy Americans that we were dealing with back there just didn't know how to break their day for a half an hour of coffee. What's wrong? I said, we're going to do it anyway. There's sometimes, there's sometimes it's wonderful. We are citizens, you see. So sometimes I can claim all the benefits of citizenship. Uh, if it works, I can claim that. If, if people get confused at some of the suggestions we make, it's wonderful because I can just declare that I'm a dumb foreigner. <laughs> so I said, at least just humor me by being a dumb foreigner. Well, I tell you, if we try to take the commons away now, I would have a riot on my hand. And I walk people, I've walked some of you into that room. It's beautiful. It's been completely refurbed. That building's been completely redone. Millions of dollars has been spent on it. But I walk into that room, and here, 10 years later, every time I stand and I look across that room, my throat tightens up. I get a tear in my eye. I say, this room healed our institution. And I still believe it. Social. I was preaching early in the week how I came to know Jesus and my friend Chris Carey got me to the front of the church. By the end of that service, somebody said, there's a youth service on Friday. Why don't you come? I thought, oh, that'd be nice. So I'm 14, very self-conscious. I get ready Friday afternoon. My parents are glad that I'm starting to develop a bit of a social life. And about 6.30, I'm due to leave and go up to the church. And all my courage failed. I turned around, went back in. My parents said, you're not going? I said, no, I'm not going. And I sat down there thinking, I wonder what they're going to be doing. It might have been nice, but I just didn't have the courage to go. And then at about 7.15, there's a knock at the door. I opened the door, and there's a young man who lived just one block away from us. He had seen me in church that Sunday night. His name was Winton. Uh, he was a little bit older than me, and so he had his own car. I'll tell you about his car in just a second, but he said... We missed your church, so I just shot down and thought, would you like to come? I got my car. It's outside. So I'm dating myself now, but his car was a mini minor Cooper S. You know, we get minis today, but they're made by that cheap company called BMW. And uh, <clears throat> uh, this was genuine British engineering. Every oil leak was genuine. And uh, those days, you'd skim the head, you'd flatten it down, you'd put a double-barrel Weber carburetor, so this tiny little 1,100cc engine would sound like a great 
big Harley Davidson and you'd put these great big exhaust pipes that looked like jet engines coming out the back of the car. You'd lower the suspension, put 18-inch tires on and the coolest, the coolest thing of all is you put fur on the dashboard. <laughs> Young people, everybody that's laughing in this room is really old. And Winton knew how to drive that car. We got in that car, and I became the most religious 14-year-old in the place. We hardly stopped at the corners. He could go around. The center of gravity was so low. We just put his foot flat, and we went around. I left my fingerprints in the steel underneath the seat. I, I, I tell you what, I said the Lord's Prayer. Somehow I'd never learned the Apostles' Creed, but it came out as well. I, started, I, crossed, I crossed my heart. I said, I, I, I did every religious thing I knew because I thought I was going to go to heaven that day, and I got out. I'm I said, thanks for the ride. We went up into a little upstairs room, and here was the youth group, and I got connected. In fact, to this day, more significant than my friend Chris Carey dragging me down the middle of the church was that encounter. And I met friends, and we started having all-night prayer meetings, and we started going on camps. We went on missions trips, and a couple of years later, walking into a building, here is the most astonishing beautiful head of blonde hair you've ever seen in your life. Green eyes, loves Jesus, and I determined I would do everything in my power to win the affection of that young lady, which I did. And this Sunday, we've been married 46 years. <laughs> And life has worked because of social interaction and the gathering of the community. Make the most of every opportunity. And if somehow you've been working on the outer circumference of church and social life, stop it and get engaged. Two more, and then I'm done. And they'll be short. The third one is perhaps... Very obvious, but slightly more difficult to describe. And that's what I call sensitive moments. You know, we are strangely wired. The Bible says we're complexly put together. We've been knit together in the creative purpose of God. And there are parts of our lives that are deep, and you can plumb very, very deeply into them. We have deep emotions and feelings and psyches. And I believe that God uses those in a very special way to move us into new areas of spirituality and spiritual growth. And the, the, there's a part of us that needs to be sensitive, sensitized to the presence of God. When we built the prayer chapel that you saw as I stood up today, part of my whole motivation was to create an opportunity for a whole new generation of young Pentecostal leaders, not just to be doers, God didn't create us human doings. He created us to be human beings. And there's a big difference between the two. And I wanted people to learn reflective practice. Ancient Christians knew much more about it than we do. We gauge almost everything by what happens and how you can, you can actually measure it. But we, we, we've, we created friends for things where deep calls to deep and heart calls to heart. And part of the spirituality that we need to learn to develop is that sensitivity to the voice of God. 
Now he speaks to us in the quiet place. That's why devotional life is important. That's why quietness and solitude is a very big part of our spiritual lives. If we're not going to be systemically stupid, there has to be a certain part of our lives that is given to a sensitive, quiet interaction with God's Holy Spirit. After our son came home from hospital, about nine months later, we got the sad news that he had developed a chronic form of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. He internally bled, was chronically ill for year after year after year. We would get calls in England that our son had been picked up in the middle of the street because he had collapsed and was in an emergency room. Who could go and help him? They, they were quite traumatic years for us as we lived at a long distance from our son who was at university in Southern California. And then we got the news that his liver enzymes were dropping terribly and that the medication that he was on, which wasn't particularly helping him, uh, was destroying his liver and we were probably only a few months away from potentially a liver transplant, which wouldn't have been a long-term solution anyway. And in the middle of all, we were invited into a little coal mining village in Yorkshire in England Tiny little church, stuck down a back road, but godly, beautiful, lovely people. The former senior pastor had been part of the mining brass band, and so music was a big part of the life of the church, and Carol and I sat on the front row, and the worship that morning was just unusually sweet and beautiful and tender. All of a sudden, Carol nudges me, I look over, her eyes have welled up with tears, and she says, God's just spoken to me in this quiet moment. I said, really? And this is what God said to Carol. And she knew God had said it. Jay's liver and stomach are going to be okay. Didn't say any more. It's going to be okay. We went home to lunch and we shared with our friends, we've just had a word from God in the service this morning. Please believe with us. We knew it was God's word. It had come to us in the quiet place, in that reflective moment. We were so determined, we got on the phone that same afternoon and said, Jay, you've got to get to see a doctor. We need you to go and have your liver tested this week. He said, I just had it tested last week. Can't get an appointment for a little while. We said, boy, you've got to do it. We feel so certain that God has spoken. So by the end of that week, he had gone back to the hospital. He had done the blood test. He had a needle phobia, so it was a real big thing to get it all done. And he called us back. He said, my doctor can't believe it, but all of my liver readings are 100%. And we knew that that was God. It wasn't some big moment. The band wasn't playing loud music. But in the sensitive place, God's... Do you know what? There are some of you that God is quietly knocking on a door, and He just needs the sensitivity of your spirit to hear somebody, something from heaven that will significantly alter the course of your life. I'm prophesying now. I'm saying to you, some of you need to take that time out because that which you have hoped for and believed for is absolutely possible, but it's the other side of a sure, quiet, still voice that affirms the will of God for your life. If that fits, take it and believe it the sensitive moment, which of course leads in to the final thing that I need to say, and that is the sacred experience. We were born and created to worship God. 
And for this purpose, we are that we might honor him in time and eternity. There's a part of our lives that will always be lacking. There's a part of our experience that will always be limited until we make a decision to be unashamed, radical worshipers of God. It's interesting, but guys have a harder issue with this than gals. Just part of the male psyche. I want you to know, ladies, God's made us extraordinarily well. He's put your men folk together in amazing ways. But they're just one or two areas where we need some help. Be patient as we seek to explore the goodness of God. And if you've been a hesitant and reticent worshiper, been a very formal prayer, allowed the priestly function of your home to slip out of your hand, I want to say to the men in this room, seize it again, make the most of it, because you're holding yourself and your family back from the functionality that's the will of God for you. Don't be stupid, but make the most of every opportunity. The morning devotion, the opportunity to lead, the sense of taking the good news of Jesus into another environment on a missions trip is a sacred experience. And you come away and you say, thank you, God, that I haven't had to live my whole life with a narrow foundation and a human perspective, but you've elevated me, as the Bible says, into heavenly places with Christ Jesus, and I've experienced God. 1983, we were leading a vibrant, growing church, and I knew that God was starting to stir my heart, but my sense of God was so limited and restricted, and I was in my office one day saying, God, you've got to speak to me from heaven. I need you to do something in my life. I'm preaching passionately, but I don't feel as though I'm really engaging your will for my life. Do you know in the Bible, Paul says, whether in the spirit or the flesh, I know not. I had one of those experiences. I don't know whether it was in the spirit or the flesh, but right down the side of my bookshelves, I felt like there was this flashing light. It was really, really real. And instantly, God began to speak into my life and said we would leave pastoral ministry. We would impact the world and we would encourage others. We would provide and, uh, a, a faith based we would trust God on behalf of others a lot of that didn't make sense but I'll tell you this friends I knew because I knew because I knew because I knew that I'd encountered the presence of the living God that led to the first chapter of this book being written and our friends Jerry and Mary Schoonby donating a multi-million dollar property it led us to Australia it took us on to lead the British Assemblies of God University with great success and blessing and see mobilized students all over the world. Do you know what our heritage is? In over 50 countries today, there are people passionately serving Jesus in mission and ministry. We get to visit them. We get to travel. We introduce this generation of students to those. Just this week, got an exciting letter from a young man who graduated some years ago, went through multiple domestic tragedies and 
now leading one of the finest homeless ministries in the whole of the United Kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. And it all started in one of those indefinable, non-measurable, but I know because I know because I know experiences of encounter with the living God. And this room is full of people who God is waiting to encounter and show you what it is to live in his will. So I've gone to great length to explain things, but the essence is still the same. Please, please don't be stupid. But make the most of every opportunity. Some of those are just a great lunchtime with friends today. Others are quick responses to the voice of God. And whether it's a special occasion or just the routine of good community or sensitive moments where God speaks deeply into your being and you hear his voice and you're responsive to him or an encounter with the divine that's beyond description, all of those friends are part of the every opportunity that God wants you to engage. And I commend them to you because when we do, our lives become incredibly fruitful. So I'd love to do something as we get to the end of our time with you. We'll be around this afternoon. We'll be at the back if you need to talk to us. But I'd love to proclaim the goodness of God over your lives. Now the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. I sometimes think when you're actually preaching it, that level of faith might be a little bit higher. Something happens. So I've got faith right now. I really do have faith that some of you will have a breakthrough with God speaking into your life, that word that you've longed for for a long time. Some of you will respond to that sort of prophetic influence that was brought a little bit earlier. Some of you will make a call and connect with somebody you haven't connected with for a long time. And others will encounter the divine and it'll change the course of your lives. So don't get religious on me, but will you stand? We're not going to bow our heads. We're not going to have nice music playing. We're just going to pronounce the goodness of a great God. Have you ever noticed all the way through the Old Testament the value that was placed upon the blessing of God being transmitted? It was like the highest honor that fathers could give to their sons. In fact, the Bible's filled with benedictions. The goodness of God. There's nothing dangerous about the will of God. Did you know that? There's a lot adventurous, but there's nothing dangerous. It's the safest place in all the world to be. So every household represented in this room, every household, you and your extended family, I declare the blessing of God that makes rich and adds no sorrow with it. I declare the faithfulness of God that as you rise and as you sleep, he will provide for you. And the ravages of inflation shall not destroy what God has planned for you in his provision. I declare over your households that the manna will be as fresh tomorrow as it was today. And you shall lack, hear me, some of you here need to hear, you shall lack no good thing in Jesus' name. Couples, I declare peace over your marriage. 
that incredible assistance of God the Holy Spirit to help you communicate graciously and kindly and tenderly with each other so that your marriages are good. Those of you longing for a work of grace and goodness and affirmation, I pray now the peace of God that passes all understanding to keep your hearts and keep your minds in Christ Jesus. In your going out, may you be blessed. In your coming in, may you be blessed. And may you be able to say, I have proven the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be it unto you in Jesus' name. The Bible says, if you would have friends, show yourselves friendly. I speak the gift of kindness and friendship. If you have found yourself just awkward, wondering why people don't spend enough time with you and they're just little twinges of anxiety about who you are and why you were born, I declare that God will reveal his purposes in your life and that you will emerge as a strong tower in the community that you're a part of. I declare it over you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I declare that that hotel shall rise from the ground and be an incredible blessing to this community and it shall be paid for. We can do it, and we should. And so may the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that blessing which sustains, which causes the everlasting arms to hold you, may it be yours and the ones that you love. Rise and serve him, and may you and your household be blessed indeed. To which we all say, Amen. Amen. And again, Amen. Amen. Started by calling you wonderful. You are the best. You are the absolute best. Now go and serve Him. <laughs>